Let's open the Scriptures to the first letter of Peter, page 1293. Page 1293, we'll read chapter 1 of Peter's first letter. This is in connection with our text in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, where we read about the resurrection of our Savior, and Peter writes about that here as well. 1 Peter 1, then verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets, who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories." It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile." knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with imperishable or not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, 
for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Please turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. We'll be focusing on the verses 3 through 10, but we'll begin reading at verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So far, our text, in response to the preaching of the gospel, will sing Psalm 30, the stanzas 4 and 5. Beloved saints of our Lord Jesus Christ, being a disciple of Jesus is not an easy thing. It's a beautiful thing, and following Christ is good, but it's not the easy path. Certainly there is joy in it. It is the only path that leads to life, but it is not the way of smooth sailing. The first disciples found that out more than once. Just when they thought they knew what to expect from the Lord, He went and did the opposite of what they thought. Only days before Good Friday, the disciples led the crowds of people into Jerusalem acclaiming Jesus as King. They had voluntarily put their coats on the donkey for Him to ride. They they threw their clothes on the ground and waved palm branches in the air. Surely the kingdom of God was about to arrive on earth and Jesus would be triumphant in Jerusalem. Five days earlier, that was the expectation. Only Jesus wasn't triumphant in Jerusalem. Days later, they were horrified and shocked to see Him cast out of Jerusalem by the authorities and nailed to a Roman cross. 
all the disciples were left in a tailspin of doubt and uncertainty until they came to see the truth of what Jesus had told them, and they saw that truth first inside the empty tomb, in the empty grave clothes. And so I proclaim to you this Easter gospel under this theme, the gospel of the resurrected's left behind clothing. We'll see three things. There are unconvinced disciples, there's an unexpected sign, and there is untapped revelation. Our text begins in John 20, verse 3, with these words, So Peter went out with the other disciple, and that's John, the writer of the gospel, and they were going toward the tomb, and both of them were running together. The reason they ran to the tomb was because of Mary Magdalene's report. Verse 2, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid Him. So you understand it's the frantic report of Mary and the others about a missing body, Jesus' missing body, that triggers their sudden run down to the tomb to check it out. But shouldn't Peter and John have already been there? The eleven disciples seem to be gathered somewhere in Jerusalem, perhaps in smaller groups in different homes, but definitely they are somewhere in the city. They're not down at the tomb outside the city. That's the clear implication of John's account and also the other three Gospels when you read them. Luke in his gospel even tells us how the disciples reacted when the women came back from the tomb and told about not finding the body of Jesus, told how they met angels along the way. Luke says, chapter 24, but these words seemed to the disciples an idle tale, and they did not believe the women. Simply put, the, the eleven disciples who were apostles, would become apostles, they did not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Even though Jesus had told them in advance. Luke tells us that in chapter 9 of his gospel. Some months earlier, before going to Jerusalem, Jesus spoke plainly to the disciples and He said this, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised to life. At that time, the disciples refused to accept what Jesus was saying. That They did not understand it, that that couldn't happen in their mind. It was totally unthinkable that Jesus would suffer and die. He's the Messiah. The Messiah doesn't die in their minds. Was the Lord speaking metaphorically, perhaps? But Jesus came back to that same prophecy again and spoke very plainly in chapter 18, only seven days before His death. So quite recently, He took the twelve aside, writes Luke in chapter 18, and He said, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for He will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. 
Even then, at that time, the disciples did not comprehend that Jesus would actually be put to death. It seemed unreal to them seven days earlier. But wouldn't you think that when those things started to happen, when Jesus actually was arrested by the chief priests and flogged and handed over to Pontius Pilate, and was treated shamefully, and was nailed to a cross, and died, wouldn't things have clicked in their minds? Everything was happening exactly as the rabbi, Jesus, had said. Would they then not have every reason to expect that the last part of Jesus' prophecy about Him rising from the dead would also take place? They had clear, advanced warning of what was going to happen, and yet for all of that, they are caught flat-footed on Good Friday, and on Resurrection Sunday, they are no-shows at the tomb. Instead of being there to welcome the Lord back to life and lead the celebration, they are somewhere in the city holed up in shock and dismay and despair. That's the 11 disciples, and it's not really a whole lot better with the women. It's true, the women are at least on their way to the tomb Sunday morning, but why are they going there? They had prepared spices, we read, which means they were going there to anoint the corpse of Jesus in accordance with Jewish burial customs. They had come to adorn His dead body and not to welcome His living presence. That was the furthest thing from their mind. So both the women and the men alike, though they were sincere followers of Jesus, His death had shaken them to the core. They all thought that Jesus was a goner. And even when angels appear to the women, they are still confused. Mary comes running to tell that the body of Jesus has been stolen. And in all of this, the eleven disciples, too, remain unconvinced that Jesus has risen from the dead. Their faith in Jesus as God's Messiah is being rocked and shaken to its foundations. There's there's just hardly anything left of it. If this happened, brothers and sisters, to the eleven disciples of Jesus... It can happen to any disciple of Jesus. Has it happened to you at some point? A person can have faith. There can be a love for the Lord Jesus, a desire to follow Him, and yet under certain circumstances a great confusion can set in and out of that great uncertainty I mean, when things hit you that you weren't expecting, hard things, shocking things that that knock you off your feet and upset the equilibrium of your life, then questions can set in and doubts can arise. Is God really watching over my life? All kinds of things can, can happen. Suddenly a friend maybe turns on you. 
and betrays a close trust. Or out of the blue, you, you get a call from your boss that you're being laid off and you start to wonder, is the Lord angry with me? Or in your, your travels on your way from here to there, you, you hit a slick patch on the road and your car careens off into the ditch and when you finally come to, you're in the hospital with broken bones and a concussion and internal injuries and you're wondering, where, where is the care of my God? Sickness one day sets in, and it just doesn't leave. Could be sickness of the body or sickness of the mind or both. Is there actually a God in heaven who loves me? Someone close to you dies suddenly. Maybe someone who didn't have faith, who was not interested in serving the Lord, and then you're confronted with that that hard reality, and it hits you like a ton of bricks, and it raises the question, is it all true? Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? Are these things real? Brothers and sisters, learn from our text to expect bumps in the road as believers. Don't be overly shocked. Of course, you're going to be shocked, but don't be overly shocked if if your life hits a 90-degree curve all of a sudden you never saw coming, the Lord never said He would cause us to live on easy street. Testing, trouble, and suffering are all part of taking up our cross and following the Lord Jesus. These same disciples in our text, even after the Holy Spirit came down on the church at Pentecost and, and filled them and the other believers, they continued to have their struggle, struggles. It took Peter and the others quite a while to accept Gentiles into the church. The Apostle Peter also speaks, or the Apostle Paul also speaks in his letters of being discouraged by the obstacles facing him at various times. The Christians to whom he wrote letters, sometimes those Christians had major questions and uncertainty. Think of the Galatians who almost slipped back into thinking that they had to earn God's love by obeying the law. Then there's the Hebrews, the Hebrew Christians. They were in danger of backsliding because of the, of the persecution they were facing. To follow Jesus in true faith means to hang on to His promises in good days and bad. He is your God, beloved. And because Christ gave His life for you and rose from the dead for you, it is not possible. You need to, you need to hear this. It is not possible for this God to abandon you. It's not possible. It's not possible for Him to stop loving you test you? Yes. Discipline you and me? Yes. Refine you? Yes. But He will never, ever leave you or forsake you. The Lord does not promise us a trouble-free life, but He promises to take us through the troubles to the other side, to a place of tranquility and peace. This is precisely what he does for these unconvinced disciples who are distraught in their lack of faith. This is what he does for them as he provides an unexpected sign. 
So you have to understand the mindset of Peter and John in our text as they run to the tomb is the mindset of unbelief. They think Jesus is dead. And he's not coming back. John tells us that there's a moment when he does believe that Jesus rose from the dead. That's verse 8, which means that prior to that, he did not believe. Luke, in his gospel, confirms this. He tells us that the disciples thought the women's report about the missing body and the angels and the resurrection, they thought it was all nonsense, that it was just hysterical, the hysterical babbling of women about unreal things. So they're thinking as they're running, the Lord's body couldn't be gone. The women have to be mistaken. Who would take it? And, and, and he couldn't have been raised from the dead. I mean, who around has the power to raise anybody from the dead? Yes, we saw Jesus raise others from the dead, but we've never seen anybody raise himself from the dead. How can a dead man rise in his own power? So all this talk of the women, it's, it's got to be sad. It's nothing but a sad, pathetic mix-up they're thinking as they hightail it to the tomb. That mindset explains why John did not go inside the tomb. We read there, John tells us very carefully that he outruns Peter. And we read in verse 5, And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Now, to kind of understand what John saw, you have to picture the setup of the tomb. The tombs were cut into a rock face or, or a hill, of which there were many in and around Jerusalem. And typically, there would be one main entrance into the tomb, uh, into a kind of a foyer, and from that foyer, so to speak, there would branch out two or three or four separate burial chambers where different bodies would be laid. You can imagine that when you cut into rock to form a tomb, you would only cut what you needed. That was not the easiest task. So the spaces inside would be small. They would be cramped. The, the, the doorways would be low. And in the area of Jerusalem today, there are examples of two round tombstones, such as are described in the gospel accounts. And in each case, the round stones are placed not in front of that outer entrance, but they're there in the inside in front of those separate inner burial chambers. So when John says that he arrives at the tomb and he, he stoops down to look in, he's at the outer entrance looking inside. So the light inside would have been dim at best. He would be several feet away from the actual burial chamber with its stone rolled away. From his vantage point on the, on the outside, he could see the linens in which Jesus' body had been wrapped. And then he doesn't go any further. He doesn't need to go any further. He's seen what he came to see. He thinks that he sees evidence that Jesus is in fact, his body is in fact still there in the tomb, dead. Remember, he has not believed the women's story. So he's looking for evidence to prove the women wrong. And seeing the linens in their place, in their proper place, was all the evidence he needed. Things 
didn't change in John's thinking until he stepped into the tomb after Peter and he saw something else. He then saw the headcloth. So the headcloth is the game changer, but we'll come back to that in, in a moment. Let's think for a moment about those linen wraps and, and how the condition of those linen wraps. The custom of the Jews was to first wash the body and use long strips of linen, about a foot wide, give or take, to wrap the body, and they would start at the shoulder and work their way down to the feet. John told us in chapter 19, verse 40, that Joseph and Nicodemus had wrapped or bound Jesus' body with linens, and they used about 75 pounds, think about that, 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes, which is a colossal amount of scent and spices. This concoction would have been poured over the linens and the spices placed inside the linen wrap as they wrap the body. Linen is, of course, a very highly absorbent material. So these cloths, they would have been drenched with the, the liquid myrrh and the spices. And when this liquid myrrh and perfume would begin to dry up as, as water evaporated, it would leave those linens wrapped around the body, it would leave them stiff, crusty. The ointment would have essentially acted like a kind of a glue to bind the, the layers of the wrap together over the body, so the net effect would be to form a kind of a shell or cocoon around the body. And that's what John sees when he peers into the half-light from the front of the entrance. He has respect for the dead. He's convinced that the body's still there. The women were wrong. He stays put. And then along comes Peter, impetuous Peter, who first asks and uh, who, who first who acts first and asks questions later. And with the story ringing in his ears that the body of Jesus has disappeared. He, he doesn't worry about subtleties or customs. He rushes right inside this cramped tomb to see all the evidence that there might be. And that's when he saw what John could not see from the outer entrance. Our text builds up to this climax, verse 6 and 7. Peter saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. The face cloth, or the, the head wrapper, was folded up. Actually, a, a better translation would be it was rolled up by itself away from the body cloths. And that's what stops Peter and later John in their tracks. That meant something. You see, again, these Jewish burial customs, they would wrap the body with one wrapping, and they would wrap the head with a separate wrapping called a head cloth, face cloth. Sometimes it's called a sweat cloth or a napkin. Once these preparations were completed, you would, if you were to look at the whole body, you would see essentially nothing but wrapping. It was two separate wraps, but they, they met at the neck, and you would see one 
wrapping, kind of like a mummy. But here, Peter and John, right behind him, they, they, they come into the tomb and they see the body wrapped in its expected place, looking like a cocoon, but the head wrap is not at the spot of the head. It's separate. It's over there somewhere, off by itself. And we shouldn't get the wrong idea from, from that the ESV translation that it's folded up as if it's folded flat or lying like a dinner napkin. The verb means to, to roll and to wrap. It's actually the same verb that Luke uses to describe how Jesus' body was wrapped in linens. So the head cloth, you see, is still in its wrapped state. It's still in the, state, in the shape of Jesus' head, still stuck together with all the spices and the myrrh, only it's not where the head should be of the body. It's off by itself. And it's empty. It's as if the two cocoons have been separated and the body of Jesus has gone out like a butterfly. We read later of Jesus going in and out of locked rooms without using the door. So here too, it was not necessary to actually take off the linen grave clothes for Jesus as resurrected could easily pass through them and leave them untouched which is exactly what Jesus did for the body wrap. But before he left the tomb, he moved the head wrap. That was Jesus' sign, you see. That was his particular action to signal to them that he really had risen from the dead. John says it in verse 8, he saw and believed. It hit him between the eyes when he saw the two body wraps lying separate. Now it was unmistakable. The body is not inside the wrapping as he first thought. No human also could have stolen the body. Otherwise the wraps would be shredded or the whole wrap would be gone. No human power could have gotten that body out of the wrap by keeping the wrap intact. This was a divine work. And the person who rose from the dead, Jesus, he left behind a deliberate message. He set apart that head wrap so to awake faith in his disciples. What the women said must actually be true. John gets it now. The Lord is alive. He believes. Do you see the kind of Savior that you have, brothers and sisters. Not only has He done this tremendous act of giving His life on the cross for the forgiveness of all of our sins, not only has He risen from the dead in power to conquer the grave, all of that too, but this act of separating the head wrapping shows that He understands us. He knows our weaknesses. He knew that His disciples were grappling with doubts and questions. He knew they would not remember to His Word to them about rising from the dead. And so He gives them a clear sign to awaken faith. He gives them the sign of cast-off grave clothes, an empty wrapper inside an empty tomb on the third day. And that flickering little spark of faith, it suddenly bursts into flame. 
John believes, and Peter is well on his way to believing as well. Beloved, Jesus is a, your beloved shepherd who is gentle, who leads us as sheep toward the feeding ground of faith. So when you, as a follower of Jesus, have your questions and struggles, do not turn away from Jesus. Turn to Him. Seek Him in prayer. Pour out your heart. Pour out your concerns. Pour out your questions. And let Him breathe confidence back into your heart and assurance back into your faith. It is all true. It is all real. Jesus does save and He does love. Let Christ lead you back into the pastures, the green pastures of His Word. For that was something the disciples had not yet discovered, but which we believers are privileged to know. Faith rests upon the Word of God, upon the, the Word. The disciples, they had forgotten the Word that Jesus had spoken to them, and they didn't search out the message of the, the Hebrew Scriptures either. They left the Bible closed. For them, it was an untapped revelation, and that left them in a fog of uncertainty and unbelief Easter Sunday morning. You know, sometimes when Christians' confidence gets low and they're dealing with a lot of uncertainty, they, they sometimes wish they had a sign from God, something to confirm their faith, just a little proof to make them convinced again that it's all true and it's all going to work out well in the end as God has promised. But the Lord directs our attention elsewhere. He doesn't say you should expect a sign. He says you should go to my word. Verse 9, after John is said to see and believe, we read this comment, for as yet they did not understand from Scripture that he had to rise from the dead. So John saw with his eyes the undeniable evidence of resurrection. He put two and two together, and then as he writes his gospel, he adds this note of self-deprecation, a note to say that such belief through eyesight was still an immature belief. It was like a baby drinking milk, for they had not, those disciples had not yet come to grasp from the Scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead, that this was part of God's plan, that the Son of Man had to be lifted up on the cross, as we saw two days ago, and that He had to rise from the dead in order to overcome sin and death. And it's from the Scripture then, brothers and sisters, that the people of God are to get their confidence not from seeing with the eyes. A little bit later in the same chapter, Jesus will say the same kind of thing to Thomas in verse 29 of, of John 20. You know Thomas was doubting, right? He was probably the biggest doubter in the group of 11. And then Jesus says to him after Thomas 
comes to faith, he says, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those. The original 11 disciples were given the task to to bear witness with their eyes. They had to be eyewitnesses of the resurrection, but the blessing of believing without having seen, that belongs to you and to me, beloved. And to the rest of Christians since the disciples' time, Peter remembered this blessing too as he wrote in 1 Peter 1. We read that together. Verse 8, Though you have not seen Jesus, you love Him. Though you do not now see Christ, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Brothers and sisters, you have not seen Jesus, nor have I. So if you believe that He is the Son of God sent from heaven to die on a cross for your sins and rise from the dead, if you believe that, you are blessed by God. That means you believe on the basis of what Scripture has taught. And it's from the Scriptures that you draw your faith, your confidence, your assurance as the Holy Spirit impresses these truths on your hearts. You didn't walk the roads of Israel with Jesus in the group. And you didn't stand at Golgotha to see Him die. But you have seen it through the Scriptures. You've been taught it, most of us, since we were kids And by grace, we know Jesus from out of the Scriptures. What a rich treasure of knowledge you've already got, beloved. And no, you didn't see Him on Resurrection Sunday, but you gather in Jesus' presence every Sunday to celebrate the fact of His resurrection and to to hear Christ speak out of His Word. So don't for one minute think that you are at a disadvantage because you weren't there the first Easter. You are divinely blessed for you have seen with the eyes of faith. And when you return to the Word word of God, And when you return to the Word, the Word of God, day in and day out, when you listen to the Lord speak to you out of Scripture, when you hear Him also in the day of your questioning and the day of your doubting and the day when trouble comes and anguish is felt, then those questions, they may trouble you, yes. The Psalms are filled with believers who had had troubling questions. But those questions, they will not overcome you. They will not squash your faith. The doubts, they may nag at you, but they will not consume you. And anguish you may feel, yes, but only for a time. And the Lord will bring you through it. And soon you'll realize again, 
that your Lord and Savior is walking with you in the trouble. That's the kind of God you have, the kind of Savior we have. He doesn't snuff out a smoldering wick. What does He do? He cups His hands around that that tiny flickering light, and He coaxes it back into a bright flame of faith. The resurrected one's cast-off clothing signaled that already. That's who He is, and His Word proves it to us again and again. So go ahead. As a disciple of Jesus, confess your faith in Christ, the living one. Tap into His revelation so that He may feed your faith from it. Because Jesus lives, you live. As with His resurrection, so with your future resurrection. Death really is defeated. Amen.